Welcome to the International Civil Society Center's Future and Innovation Podcast. I'm Nihal Helmi, Knowledge and Communities Manager here at the Center. Our Global Perspectives 2021 hybrid experience was as exciting and inspiring as you'd expect. We gave our communities the opportunity once again to immerse themselves in themes and workshops, designing common strategies to address key trends, challenges, and opportunities of shifting power. We have created these episodes to bring you some of the conversations and panels we experienced during the conference. We hope you find them as insightful and valuable as we did. Welcome everyone. So maybe we can start off with a little intro. We can start off with Annie. Maybe tell us a little bit about what you do in your organization. Yeah, thanks. Hi, Nihal. Hi, everyone. My name's Annie. I am the head of finance and compliance at Purposeful. Purposeful is a feminist movement building hub for adolescent girls. We're Africa rooted, uh, but we do issue grants globally to grassroots girl-led organizations and also some girl-focused allies. My background is in audit, so I'm actually quite financially cautious, I would say, especially when it comes to taking risks. But I moved into the NGO sector in 2017. This was quite a large NGO and then Purposeful two years ago. So at Purposeful as a startup, I wear quite a lot of different hats, but really excited to bring sort of a finance and compliance perspective to the conversation today. Thank you, Annie and Mohammed. Please go ahead. Thank you very much, Nihal. This is Mohammed Shahzad Khan. I work with the Chanan Development Association, as you mentioned. So basically what we do at Chanan Development Association, we work with other youth organizations and young people, ensuring meaningful participation of young people. And most of our work is around empowering young people through building their capacities, but importantly that we bring resources to those young people who are working at the grassroots level who doesn't have access to the mainstream resources. So we specifically support youth organizations, young activists and individuals, those who doesn't have even organizations by providing sub-grants and micro-grants to those organizations young people so that they can also implement their ideas in the communities and they don't have challenges in terms of accessing the resources and capitalizing on their potential plans in the communities. Thank you so much, Mohammed Kimberly. We would love to hear also about you. So my name is Kimberly McLean, and I am the Regional Director for the Americas at Global Fund for Children. And Global Fund for Children is a grant-making public foundation that focuses on getting resources to local grassroots organizations around the world that focus on children and youth. And prior to coming to Global Fund for Children, I had worked for about 10 years at a very large NGO, primarily implementing large-scale projects with government funds or intergovernmental funds. And so um, was kind of baptized into the regulatory world in that way. And and after 10 years, was very frustrated with it. And so at Global Fund for Children really is built upon this belief in get the funds to the grassroots, let them do the amazing work that can be done there. There's just a very different ethos. And it's been really great to see how we can rethink a lot about how we see risk, how we approach our financial relationship with partners. So that's been a really great journey for me. Thank you all. It does require a lot of questioning and our mindsets, which I'm sure is not easy at all to question our organizational structures and practices, including our relationship to risk and financial management. But let's first talk about your experiences. How does risk appetite and our relationship with risk influence individual perceptions and organizational practices? What does that look like across the sectors of philanthropy and global development? Perhaps we can start with Kimberly and then we can continue with Annie and Muhammad for more impulses and comments. 
You know, when I think about this question of risk, I think Western society often looks at risk kind of first and foremost as financial, and then with some reputational and security risk kind of sprinkled in there for good measure. We worry a lot about losing money, about losing status, and then sometimes, you know, physical harm or insecurity. But we really don't talk about the risk of the status quo, because if things don't change, we're still doing okay, right? But for social change actors, the risk of failing to make changes is quite real and actually will be the hardest felt, more so than any potential financial losses or reputational hits, or in some cases, even threats to physical security, all of which for many people are kind of among the normal risks of life. So, you know, we, we often speak with awe of people's bravery and sacrifice in the global South because we we don't feel like we could do the same thing. And in fact, it's kind of true. We're, we're externalizing our fears about financial loss and reputation onto our partners and asking that they kind of guarantee us that we won't get hurt, right, by helping them. And in that way, we're kind of unwilling to take any risk with them. And I see that that really just turns into things like really long grant agreements, lots of limitations and requirements attached to receiving any sort of grant money, a lot of legalistic language, a lot of focus on financial due diligence and reporting, and then kind of defining organizational capacity and strength very narrowly in terms of the ability of an organization to protect donor money. So those are some of the things that I really kind of see in the big picture of what's happening when we talk about risk in this area. And Annie, I know that you know, you've thought a lot about these things from a quite different perspective, or at least coming from a background of audit. So I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Kimberly. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think there is a bit of a disconnect in the balance of risks at the moment. Of course, there are absolutely things that organisations need to safeguard themselves against. And, you know, that we have to be financially sustainable to continue helping people that we want to help and support. So I think that there's definitely a need to have some processes in place. My perception of the sector is that actually that the balance isn't there. It feels like you inherit risk appetites everywhere you work and they're just getting more and more risk averse to protect yourselves against every little thing. And it feels that actually no one takes a step back anymore to say, given the grantees that we have or the partners that we have or we work with or the beneficiaries that we work with, what are the risks to us, irrespective of kind of the risk appetites we may have learned and inherited elsewhere. And I think when we talk about kind of decolonization as well, we take the kind of societal impacts on us anyway and that's ingrained in us you know there are reasons that bilateral organizations of the world will contract with head offices in the global north for example generally speaking because they have this kind of inherent trust that organizational policies and procedures are there that may not be there in their country offices in the global south which doesn't particularly make a lot of sense when the money is passing through them anyway so i think that for me there's a real disconnect at the moment around what risk appetites should be versus what they are And I think there's a lot of questioning people should be doing around why we have the risk appetites we have, particularly, as you say, Kimberly, around the fact that, you know, the activists that we're supporting are taking huge risks every day to try and change their their context and their their communities and their circumstances. And we see everything just framed through, you know, how can you account down to the last cent or the last penny or whatever currency we're working in? So, yeah, I think that there is a lot of kind of space for opening up that conversation and really questioning, you know, we have some fundamental things we need to safeguard against. You know, we have to make sure that we're not allowing things like money laundering or terrorist financing or fraud or corruption. But how we do that can 
really be tailored to kind of the people we're working with and it just feels at the moment there's so much compliance in the sector that is disproportionate for the people that we want to work with whenever we talk about risks and particularly from a funders point of view they of course talk about financial risk and, and coming strong on accountability but when we work in the ground because we are youth organization we are national organization working at the grassroots and we work with a lot of young people young activists who are going through a lot of challenges and particularly when they challenge the customary practices they challenge the traditional norms they challenge the tribes for example or sometimes society it's, it's a very difficult place for them so i think when we talk about accountability the relationship between the donors and the grantees remain heavily focused on compliance heavily focused on you know systems but the relationship is not based on mutual trust and accepted and understanding the local context because sometimes the young people that we work with they are living under circumstances where it's really difficult for them to comply with a lot of regulatory requirements that are there not only the regulatory requirement but also the you know donors requirement for example the relationship from our perspective what we have learned by working from past 15 years as youth organizations and evolved as, as a national platform for other youth organizations we have learned that you know in order for any change to happen the relationship between the donors and the grantees must be based on mutual respect and as equal partners not just as some sort of contractor or contractee some sort of part, but having people partnered for achieving some values so the value based relationship must be the priority and also in terms of the resources i think what happens mostly particularly i'm talking about the very large grants which should be spent out in the country because they are part of the country development programs for big funders but what happens that along with that program there comes in mandatory requirements of having the you know capacity strengthening opportunities but most of the time this capacity strengthening or the consultant cost again go back to the north where the consultants or the technical experts comes and they do a lot of great stuff which must be appreciated but at the same time the local organizations gets a very small share and, and you know they are and the beneficiaries that we talk about these are the ones who receives a very very tiny share of it lastly i think from our perspective the accountability is important and it must be done but the accountability that is most important is the one that we are accountable to the communities so it's the communities that takes the accountability part and we partners or facilitators or being you know individual organizations we should facilitate and being more transparent but unfortunately the relationship between the donors and grantees are some sort of you know it, it, it has turned in the past that donors some sort of become as contractors they just follow the you know terms mentioned in the contracts and ask the partners to comply but the civil society organizations working at the grassroots they sometimes are not being able to comply because they don't have the capacity and unfortunately the donor community is not you know ready to invest in those capacities rather than working with those who already have the systems in place thank you all for this and i see that you've also touched upon the challenges when it comes to financial reporting and compliance and accountability and it seems that there's like a triangle here that the sector spends a lot of time and money and energy so this triangle on financial monitoring to minimize risk and i do believe that you've touched on the barriers but maybe any you can come here and tell us i know that you have a few things and ideas on the challenges on the grassroots level that organizations face so maybe you can tell us also a little bit about that yeah, thanks mihal and just just like to echo mohammed's point it's a great when he ended on the last comment on kind of who are we accountable to in terms of kind of financial monitoring i think the way the sector is set up at the moment the barriers are huge and you know even from like an application stage perspective right you're already excluding sometimes the very people you're trying to support uh, particularly if you're working with grassroots groups and at purpose will we focus on kind of adolescent girls grassroots groups 
So at that stage, a lot of girls are excluded from education. So we know they have low literacy and numeracy levels. They have a lack of access to digital devices. Quite often, they can also be people with disability that really struggle even to apply for grant funding because of the way templates are set up for budgets and financial monitoring going forwards. So right at the very beginning, you have these barriers to excluding lots of grassroots groups that we would like to help. And those that then are successful in applying for funds and become grantees, as Kimberly said earlier, they have to sign up to these huge grant agreements. They spend a lot of time focused on paperwork rather than their activism. So there's an opportunity cost in terms of the time they have available to do the work that really highlighted the impact they're creating and why they should be getting funding in the first place. And then you also have this problem of sort of a, an accountability and a compliance cycle that goes down a supply chain. So if you think of maybe USAID, for example, can be mentioned earlier, they might work through NGOs or not-for-profits who might have partner organisations in various regions who might also have partner organisations or work with CBOs in those regions. And every single part of that chain is forced to feed this kind of compliance machine of USAID. And to be fair to them, they're a government organisation, they're accountable to their taxpayer. So it does make sense as to why they have some of these controls, but it's also putting a level of compliance pressure and financial pressure that is quite disproportionate if you go right to the bottom of that supply chain, just to service a donor at the top of the chain. And as Mohammed said, you know, really, it's about who are we accountable to? Are we accountable to the donor? And absolutely, yes, we, we've got their money and, and we should be able to talk about how we spend that. But where's the sense of accountability to the beneficiaries that we're helping? And I think having all of these kind of finance posts in place so that we can service that reporting requirement also means that you're building in overhead to quite small organisations that then makes them seem like they're not very, you know, the proportion of money spent on direct programming, for example, isn't as attractive to other donors. One of the other points I'd just like to make is when you're talking about this level of time, money and energy, I would love donors to think through a bit more kind of the cost benefit for that. You know, you're pushing in this relationship from the very beginning that says we don't trust our grantees. And there's this, you know, reporting on reporting on reporting that could be monthly. It's checked. It's cross-checked. People have audits. The donors might do another audit of you. And how much are they really finding of money that is not going where it should be going or being spent on beneficiaries? You know, I'm, I'm really curious to know what the statistics are on kind of money that they found that has been misused or has been fraudulently spent versus the amount of money it costs them to track that amount because to me it just feels like we're creating an industry of compliance that is so disproportionate for what we're actually trying to prevent happening you know one of the things that we do in purposeful is we we do really flexible grant making to grassroots girls and we talk a lot about you know trust as well which I know we'll, we'll kind of come on and talk about in a bit but I think that has to be at the root of things because you know at some point somewhere even in an audit you have to trust what different sources of evidence are saying so yeah, I think that there's more that can be done in the sector about having a compliance and accountability level that allows people to actually focus on impact rather than necessarily, you know, every last cent, every last fluctuation and exchange rate, which, you know, is so inaccessible to grassroots groups. They have no idea what some of that terminology even is. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of work that can be done in the sector to, to lower some of those barriers. And it's definitely, yeah, a direction I hope we all head in. But Shazad, I'd absolutely love to hear from you in terms of what you experience on the ground. Oh, yes, of course, just to add, you know, that in terms of time, I think I think it's a very important point that how much time and energy organizations spend in terms of compliance, in terms of putting the papers together, 
not only at the time of application, but even at the time of reporting, for example, without realizing that because people that sit in those big organizations and donors, they are hired for, for this kind of job. But at the end of the day, you know, the implementing partners, which are the local small grassroots organizations or the activists at the ground, they don't have that much human resource available to the organizations, but they have the limited human resource and they are not only responsible for implementing the programs and carrying out the activism that they really believe in, but at the same time, put a lot of pressure in terms of compliance to the donor requirements. When they start, we have seen, you know, while working in the field that when they start doing focus, when they start focusing on the compliance side, when putting papers together, putting the, you know, files together, they have spent a lot of time and that costs them, you know, a lot of opportunity costs that takes a lot of time out of them for actual implementation in the programs. And that actually put a lot of burden on, on, on those people. So this is, this is one thing. And secondly, I think it's just, it's very much important for, for any organization to make sure that, you know, wherever the money is coming from, the money is from somebody's pocket and every penny needs to be accounted for. But at the same time, if the grassroots organization we talk about, if these organizations or local people, if the capacity is not strengthened on financial management, for example, on program implementation, then how they are going to make sure that both the quality of the program is not compromised, but also at the same time, their financial management is also being compliant to to the requirement. So I think here is the most important part is that mostly donors gives a lot of program funding to the uh, to the implementing partners and to the people working at the grassroots the amount of money that is for them to decide that how to use that kind of money you know the open funding or the uh, more relaxed model of funding i think uh, that is something missing and that is why the local organizations are not being able to have themselves you know really focused on their own interventions rather what we have experienced in the ground that most of the organizations the people working at the ground they tend to go for everything where they can get small pieces of money so that they can survive. But every proposal that you see, every project that you see, everybody talks about the sustainability. But they're talking about sustainability of the programs, but it's very unfortunate that what about the sustainability of the organizations? What about the sustainability of the groups? I'm not talking about the NGOs itself, but the local community groups that comes together as part of the program. But after the program, they usually disperse because uh, you know nobody takes care of them. Nobody actually looks after those people. So I think what we need to focus as an organization is that the donors must make sure that the compliance or the accountability, you know, for us, this is the most important part, the accountability is for the people. And we have worked with activists and people at the grassroots who believe that their requirement, uh, you know, they, they are working for a cause and that cause is most important for them. Even some people have lost their life for that specific cause. But at the same time, they do require resources, but not the, the kind of, sometimes the, the compliance limit the ability of those people to have access to those resources and thus continue to struggle. Now, Mohammed and Ani, like I'm, I'm kind of sitting here going, oh my gosh, yes, preach, preach. I mean, so much energy, technology, paper, ink, staples, filing cabinets <laughs> that go into all of this. And then donors get upset, right, when there's really high administrative costs, which, I, you know, it's one of those like paradoxes that why are we doing this? And it's as if we think, you know, social entrepreneurs really enjoy spending their nights and weekends doing paperwork because, you know, that's why they got into this. But I want to add just two more quick points. And one is that I think that this real focus on financial reporting and accountability really gives donors a false sense of what the true costs of delivering social change is or delivering these kind of social goods. It completely undervalues all the other resources the organizations are actually investing, and it actually makes programming and social change look cheaper than it is. And that just really drains and depreciates all those other resources, all the volunteer time and energy, all the social capital, oftentimes even just the infrastructure and equipment, and also like personal assets that are being used for the organization. I mean, I'm sure that Mohammed has experience with this. Like you lend your own space out, your own, you know, sometimes your own vehicle. 
all these different things that end up being used. And not to mention the whole kind of friends and family subsidy of like all the uncompensated overtime, all the kind of below market compensation that, you know, social change activists kind of, they put their heart and soul in and actually those are costs that we just aren't acknowledging. And so I think that that's a piece that I think has a real negative effect on kind of expectations in the global North of what you can get for your money, right? And I think the other thing is there's a real psychological and social cost kind of coming back to the relationship side of this, that, you know, persistent power relationships where those with money really set the terms and can coerce those who don't have them to accept all these terms in order to, you know, get access to this money really perpetuates and really worsens the kind of very inequality and injustice that we say we're trying to change, right? So when grassroots organizations are kind of kept in their place by these rules and regulations, they're forced to sign on to in order to get a small share of the wealth in the world that, you know, we can, it can be fairly argued has been kind of unjustly concentrated in the hands of a few. We're not actually being serious about social change. And I think, you know, then organizations are kind of forced to accept these terms and also have to kind of limit their dreams of change, right? It's create a real intense kind of cognitive dissonance that I think leads a lot of people in the development sector to, to burn out. This is super amazing to hear all of this. I think Kurds with a lot of organizations also to have a new approach and to move towards the more trust with grassroots organizations. Kimberly, Global Fund for Children is now taking this change seriously and they are moving towards sharing power. What did you learn? What are your learnings when it comes from power sharing and changing the status quo with the grassroots organizations that you are working with? You know, GFC started giving out grants 25 years ago on really on the premise that if we can just get resources to the grassroots, there is so much happening there that is so truly rooted in what change that needs to happen in all the diversity of places in the world. And so to start from that standpoint, like we kind of knew, yes, we want to give flexible funds. We don't want to put a lot of burden on. But I do think that for a long time, it's a lot easier just to adopt what you see around you. So you take somebody else's grant template and you take somebody else's application form and you just start using them because it just gets the ball rolling. I've been with GFC now about three years, and I know that a lot of work happened prior to me joining, but it's been really interesting to see that we continually keep updating and learning things. Even just in the past three years, we have very simple financial reporting template. Partners only need to report at you know, the end of their one-year annual grant. And we realized for a lot of partners, they receive the money in local currency in their bank account. The banks make the conversion and then they get a local currency amount. But we weren't giving them an easy way to report back in local currency without having to worry as Annie mentioned, and things like exchange rates and exchange loss. So we, you know, like, well, we can, we can fix that. That's a fix we can do. Just add a little option on the Excel template that we provide. They can report back easily that way. And so that, you know, little things like that can make a really big difference and also just demonstrate to our partners that we are also learning and changing and that we don't know everything and we can make change when we hear some concerns. So we get a lot of feedback from partners and, and really look at that carefully. What, what adjustments can we make? We've made changes towards having more options available for organizations to receive fund transfers, particularly in really complicated contexts where the banking system or the government's response to local civil society is not particularly cooperative or helpful. We've now officially removed the requirement to be registered as a nonprofit in your country. We had been working with a lot of workarounds for a long time, and we realized, like, well, why are we even creating this workaround? We can just change how we approach this. Because we realized there's nothing particularly magical about being registered with a government, right? That we often in the global north, we think it means something that maybe it doesn't in different places. We also removed a requirement we had for partners to bring us a letter from their bank confirming their account information. 
this was something that was put in place a couple of years ago because yes, in fact, we had a case where a small amount of money went into someone's personal bank account and never came back to the organization. And so in a reactionary way, we had put all these extra controls on top. But then looking at it, we're like, that was one, a one-off incident. We haven't had any concerns with that since then. And it's really hard to get banks to give you a letter. Think of doing that in, in my case, I live in the US, like US banks don't do that. <laughs> you can't go in there and ask for them to give you a signed letter with your bank account information. They wouldn't know what to do with that. So there's all sorts of little things like that. But I think the, one of the things that I'll mention I'm, I'm most kind of hesitantly proud of, I'll say, is that we have always expensed our grants in our accounting system when they are dispersed, because we really figure that's, that is when we are letting go of that money. We are making the choice to pass that money into the hands of our local partners. But increasingly, you know, GFC is a public foundation. We have to fundraise and we use the money that we give out for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part is being given by large foundations that have their own financial structures. And so we have negotiated and we have worked with big foundations now and said, look, this is how we operate. We understand that your financial regulations are different, but when you agree that you, you like our model, you agree that how we work, our model does also include how we do financial management. So that's how we're going to keep doing our accounting. And I'll be honest, I feel like that's point where GFC has decided to take on some risk. Because at the end of the day, if auditors come from a large foundation and say, actually, this doesn't match what you signed in your grant agreement, and we say, well, we tried to be as transparent as possible up front, but we couldn't change our entire model. That actually would affect our ability to be a flexible funder that is so core to how we relate to our partners, then it wouldn't work. So I think the fact that we are willing to take actually take on risk, like real risk, is something that I, I feel really proud of. So in Pakistan, what we have done as a national organization, what from my experience we learned that there's a lot of international organizations who work here, whose country offices are here, and they were supporting the local civil society organization. But because of the government compliance issues, a lot of INGOs have withdrawn from Pakistan. So from past five years, we have been working to strengthen our grant management system. And we have made a way in which, you know, we have developed system of grant management based on the participatory action learning mobilization. It's a farm, it's a technique where we put the community at center of our decision making. So we basically asked the civil society organization, the young activists to collaborate with the community and they form some sort of, you know, partnership in terms of, you know, who's taking decisions, where accountability lies and how they are going to take care of the initiative after the sustainability. And we have observed that this technique of empowering communities and working through this participatory action learning mobilization strategy in, in, the, in the community work very well. Not only it has enhanced community ownership of the initiatives, but also it has provided more sustainability to the organizations. And also because we are a national organization and we are channelizing the resources to these civil society organizations, a lot of compliances from the government regulatory authorities that were there on international NGOs now no more applies to local NGOs, which means that they can have more access and can easily utilize those resources. So this is one way of working around under this challenging circumstances to be to partnering more at the grassroots. I'd also like to share a little bit about some of the things that Purposeful's led through its Global Resilience Fund, which was a new way of grant making for us. We did small grants of up to $5,000. We're fully flexible um, globally through to, to kind of respond to the, the extra challenges of COVID-19. And I think part of that was also a participatory model. So it builds in trust to the system, but also having participatory grant making as well can also be a financial control because you're you're then having multiple people score different groups who may be unregistered, but like Kimberly said, where you may feel like they're a bit more risky, but you have multiple people scoring these. So the odds of kind of collusion, corruption, funding things through money laundering are kind of actually decreased because you have a, a wider pool of people having a look at this and going through that. 
I think that something else is also that we've done, which is really great, is kind of we've really reviewed our due diligence processes around who we're funding. And for us, the key thing to mitigating any potential financial risk is really knowing who you're granting to. And so we've actually looked at through the due diligence process, really building those relationships with people, getting references from people. But again, doing that in a very accessible way, bearing in mind the fact that a lot of the grassroots groups that we work with may not have access to kind of you know the internet and email address, whatever it might be. We also decided to stop doing kind of traditional financial reporting and actually do learning calls because people can talk about their work in a way they can't necessarily write about their work and they can't necessarily fill in the template about their work. But it allowed us to, A, we know who we're talking to because we already have a relationship with them from the beginning of the process. But also we can open up conversations around finance in ways that are more accessible to them and get richer understandings of their work. And it's about lowering those barriers. So we've learned a lot more around how people have spent their money, what their challenges have been with spending that money, if they haven't spent it or what their plans are, because they have the flexibility to adapt to whatever the needs are in their local context. And they can also talk about it from a position that they're in a space where they're not going to be chastised if they haven't spent it all or if they haven't spent every cent on a certain thing because the budgets were always fully flexible in the first place. So I think it's just been a really interesting learning for us around how we can still maintain kind of compliance and understand what people have spent their money on and and that it is in line with kind of our charitable aims as well, which is always really important from an audit perspective without making it inaccessible to people and without lifting up barriers. And instead, we're always trying to approach that partnership in a more true meaning of the word partnership, which involves a lot more trust than just you know, make sure you account for every single penny. It seems that you're all disrupting the status quo and disrupting these traditional practices, which I think a lot of our partners and shareholders can also learn from. But if we could say two or three recommendations, let me start with Muhammad there. What would be your two, three recommendations to continue this disruption? I think the biggest disruption that can cause is amongst when when people go and whenever you know, a partner is selected, they do a lot of due diligence. So one of the models that we have used and has been very successful is that when you're doing due, due diligence, instead of doing this due diligence prior to signing the contract with the partners, I think it creates a lot of misunderstanding in partners' mind that you know whether we'll be selected or not, whether this is a kind of a due diligence to find out our capacity or to find out whether we can you know qualify for this grant or not. So I think one of the models that we have used is basically we select the partners and we sign the contract. And after signing the contract, we work with them to find out, you know, what are the challenges, you know, if there's any capacity needs that we need to identify. This way of, you know, uh, doing the due diligence after signing the contract and everything, I think this has enhanced our understanding and cooperation because then they, uh, you know, feel comfortable that they have already signed the contract and they know, you know, that whatever the exercise is, the whole purpose of this exercise is to make sure that, you know, how we can support each other and how we can build on existing partners' potentials. In terms of, you know, building these partnerships, I think it's very much important for, from a local youth organization perspective, you know, that our work is derived from the values that we have and our work is derived for, you know, the causes that we, we work for. It's not derived by, by the money. So it's very important to understand that the local organizations that work are on, not only work for, you know, does not work for money and young activists who sacrifice their lives and put their times and energies, you know, in doing some volunteer or, or work or taking the initiative, they don't work for the sake of having the salaries at the end of their month. Their work is around a cause and it's very much important for a donor, you know, whenever they want to fund something that they put that into priority and understand that, you know, for example, when somebody 
working at the grassroots put a lot of efforts and energies you know they put their lives at risk sometimes but at the end when they comply and send documents to the donors they can easily send an auto reply you know that we are on a, for example recreational holidays <laughs> so you know these kind of things happens so it's important for both donors and to understand uh, and people who you know or and ngos who work at the grassroots to understand that at the end of the day it's the people that we work for is the cause that we work for that matters whatever money is coming it's important to serve the cause but nothing can be ensured that you know if we only focus on compiling the papers paperwork can be done and must be done at the second priority not be not the first priority thank you mohammed for that and any you have spoken a little bit about saying that you've changed the way about giving funds and instead of asking them for example to write an application or something that they would write is talk about it and i think that it is super innovative nowadays maybe you can also tell us from your perspective and from the work that you have done what would be other recommendations that organizations can use to manage this financial risk and shift power in the sector i think the the biggest recommendations i would have is you know when you're designing a program or how you're going to do something you, you can think about compliance but it's not solely a financial thing right there are programmatic interventions or, or mechanisms and ways of doing things that can also become financial controls i think one of the things that has been great for purposeful is, is because we're working with small grant amounts at grassroots it's a meaningful amount for the grassroots we're giving to and it's flexible funding but it also means that you'd have to get a lot of those grants to have unintended consequences for us to have a really significant financial hit so i guess there's a kind of a recommendation for people to really actively review your risk appetite why is it what it is and if it is financial how can you maybe shift how you deliver things so that the odds of you having a, a significant financial hit or a risk rise is kind of mitigated in the impact it would have on your whole organization and i think one of the key things for for purposeful is that we have a level of unrestricted funds that has enabled us to take some risks and to be innovative and to allow for the fact that things might not work might fail which is always actually really kind of ground level really important you know you, you have to be able to have the resources to try new things and to innovate and i think the other thing is instead of always thinking about why we can't because we have policies and processes in place that say so we shouldn't do it this way maybe we should start thinking about how we can so how can we reframe how we do things so that yes we're protecting our organizations from a compliance perspective or from a financial perspective but we're not pushing that burden onto the grassroots that we operate with and instead we're we're lowering those barriers we're finding this kind of sweet spot middle ground so that they can get back to doing what they do best which is having an impact in their communities and whether it's in purposeful case we're trying to you know create a movement and support a movement of adolescent girls or whether it's youth advocates on climate change or education or, or whatever they might be doing they're doing that out, as mohammed said because it matters to them they're trying to make a change for themselves for their communities and they're taking the biggest risks doing that so how can we support them in doing that without overburdening them what's really kind of understanding what the risks are to our organization not necessarily what we've just inherited from somewhere else so so i guess that would be my kind of yeah my call to action for funders or finance colleagues out there is to stop thinking about why we can't and start thinking about how we can and, and working with our programs teams to deliver that thank you annie for this and to continue talking about this disruption but also passion and values and as you said annie 
a lot of these activists, they risk their lives and they risk other things to be able to do the work that they do. And Kimberly, I know that we have talked earlier several times about this, and I know that you're super passionate about it. <laughs> but from your perspective, also as an international organization working across the world, what would be your recommendation to continue disrupting the sector and shifting power? Yeah, I think both Mohammed and Ani, that you guys have this there's the reminder of like, we have to go back to some really key questions. Again, Mohammed, you're a kind of reminder of like, why are we doing this in the first place? Remember, because people who work day to day directly with communities and families and children, they, they know why, because they see it there. And I think the rest of us need to remember that. And that question of, of why, I totally agree on it. It's not why can't we do this? It's why do we do it this way? <laughs> How can we do it differently? And why do we do this? But recently had a, a three-year-old join our household here and three-year-olds ask why constantly. And it, it really does kind of test us. Why are we doing things this way? And yes, how can we do it differently? I come from a program side. I don't come from a financial and audit side of things, but I've been fascinated by this for a very long time because I realize how much it shapes what we do in programming, kind of the constraints in finance and clients that are around us. So, you know, I encourage people in programs, like learn about finance, learn about compliance, like get into the weeds on the laws and accounting practices, like figure out what is lying underneath your organization's policies and practices, and then talk to your finance colleagues about them, about their jobs and what they value and appreciate what they do, because it's a really critical component. But I think until we make an effort, those of us on the program side to understand that more deeply, it's going to be really hard to work together to find alternatives. And so I would say to finance colleagues on their side, like, come join us in what we do. We have a responsibility to tell you how hard some of this stuff really is <laughs> and to ask you to come think with us about other ways of working. We're going to need to bridge all those different perspectives and skill sets and ways of thinking, new and different and more equitable ways of relating to each other, even on things like finance and compliance. If Nihal, if you'll allow this, I'd love to just invite folks to kind of also just join us and continue to think about this. I have been starting to put some, I'm calling them musings, <laughs> down on paper about what accountability really is all about and where some of these ideas and concepts within accountability have for us kind of gone awry, I think, in the global development sector. I love spending time thinking about this. And I think that the more that we play around with these ideas for each organization, it will be different. But really investing time and questioning why and finding new ways to work is going to be critical to really making change in the world. Of course, we encourage this. Thank you so much, Kimberly, Annie and Mohammed. We encourage absolutely engagement here. Please join this conversation in Global Perspectives. We will have communities and topics talking about this and we will post the link that Kimberly is mentioning. And you can continue ask questions, challenge each other's and find a way of how we can change and how we can shift power. Kimberly, Annie, Muhammad, this has been great. Thank you so much for all of your comments and recommendations and disruption that you're already doing on a grassroots level. We wish you all the best and see you in Global Perspectives. You can find links to more information and resources on this topic in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to us.